0: Today, we're actually finishing this series called Safe Haven. And Pastor Sam and I have been talking to you about the necessity of a safe environment for for relationships, particularly relationships in the home with our spouse, with our kids, but also relationships with other people. Emotional safety is critical to enable people to really open up and blossom in relationships. And there's not a lot of places today where you find emotional safety. But if there is one place that ought ought to provide safety... It ought to be our homes. But, but here's the problem. Emotional safety isn't something that's just given to you. It's something that has to, be, it has to be nurtured in your home environment. And part of the problem is we come from backgrounds of brokenness and dysfunction. And so when you take a man and a woman who, who've come out of dysfunctional homes and put them together, the likelihood that they're going to know how to establish a safe environment is very small. And I will look at our, our, our own marriage. My wife was involved in a family, grew up in a home where there was kind of revolving fathers. And there was not the stability in that home life. And with, with Julia and her three brothers, we have the only standing marriage among that group. There's been a number of divorces and failed relationships. And it's taken a lot of effort in keeping Christ at the center of it. In my own family, I I grew up in a home, and I've shared with you about my dad. My dad wasn't a safe person. Very volatile, very explosive. Our, 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 Our siblings grew up in an atmosphere of fear. My dad told my oldest brother that when he turned 18, he needed to get out of the house. And the next two siblings didn't need an invitation. They were out as soon as they could. I left the house when I was 17 before my senior year of high school. And so we just didn't have a great home environment. And yet God has taken myself and Julie from our dysfunctional backgrounds and, and put us together and we've made a lot of mistakes and learned some hard lessons in marriage. And I, and I really believe this. I don't think this is my own experience. I think it's many of ours. Marriage, when it goes really well, is the closest thing to heaven on earth. And marriage that goes badly is the closest thing to hell on earth. There's nothing more painful than to be in a bad marriage. And There's nothing more wonderful than be involved in a good marriage. And so we're gonna talk about safety in marriage today and look at an ancient Bible passage. In fact, I think it's the first instruction about marriage and how to maintain a safe marriage environment. And some of you aren't married today. Maybe you've been married, you're divorced. Maybe, um, maybe your spouse has, has died and you're alone now. Maybe some of you um, are young and you're looking forward to one day being married. I'm gonna encourage you today that the principles we're going to talk about not only apply to marriage, but, but really apply to our relationship with the Lord as well. And they, they are very parallel. So I hope that you all tune in as you look at this passage. And I pray that you would do this as I do it, to ask God to speak to us through his word today. So would you pause with me and do that right now? Father, we're going to open your word. We pray that you would speak to us through your Holy Spirit. Lord, you put this in scripture for a reason. Long, long time ago, thousands of years ago, you had this recorded in Scripture for our benefit today. So we pray that that we would have an openness and a tenderness to hear and the desire to make corrections in our lives where we need to change. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. If you have a Bible, turn to Genesis 2. If you have your sermon, uh, your bulletin on the backside are some places you can jot down some notes, and I really encourage you to jot down the things that God is saying to you personally. But in Genesis um, chapter 2, we see the creation, we see the the beauty of God making this world in six days. He made um, the animals, and he made this person named Adam. And Adam was given the responsibility to name the animals. And so as the animals were brought to Adam, Adam got to see, you know, the, the giraffes and the elephants and the tigers and all these animals. And probably one of the things he noticed was that each of them had a pair. Each of them had the opposite sex. So there was a male and female of all of the species. And it says there, starting in Genesis chapter 2, But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. He didn't find anybody. That really was a, a match for him. So the Lord caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man and he brought her to the man. The man said, Now this is... This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. And that is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. So while Adam is is naming the animals, he notices there's none that really offer to him a deeper relationship. Now, you can love your horse, and you can love your, your cat and your dog, And you can have some kind of relationship with them, but you can't have a deep relationship with an animal like you can with a human. And Adam longed for that, and I think God was just showing him his need, that he needed companionship. I believe companionship is the number one need that's met in marriage. Obviously, you can raise kids in marriage, you can have sexual intimacy, but really what we're longing for is companionship. We don't want to be alone. And God says, I'm going to create someone to to be there for you. And so he put Adam into sleep, some spiritual anesthesia, took a rib out of him. Now, I don't know why God had to do that because he, he can speak things into existence. But, but maybe there's something he was trying to tell us of, of the, the, the joint nature of, of man and woman, that he took a rib, formed a woman, then presented her to Adam. Now, back then, there were no um, J.C. Penney's. There, there was no coals, and so they had no clothes. And it says they were both there naked, and without shame. And I believe that is the, the beautiful picture of a safe haven, of a man and a woman totally vulnerable with each other and feeling perfectly safe. This isn't a passage where we start thinking pornographically or that kind of, it is, it is really a beautiful passage of the safety of a man and a woman together before sin entered the picture. Now this week, uh, my wife bought a coffee maker, a different kind of a coffee maker that that does more than just coffee, makes fancy coffee. Like it can make espresso and it can make cappuccinos. It's got this little, little, little tiny coffee pot in there and you make your coffee and you steam it and it's got a a steamer there that you froth the milk and so we were going to make a cappuccino the other day. So she puts coffee in and and this, this really rich brew of coffee comes in this tiny little pot. I mean, it's really tiny. It's only about that big. And then she takes the, the milk, and we use, we use uh, almond milk, or coconut milk, coconut milk. And so she put that in there, and the, and the frother just went, <laughs> it was done, like done. No more frothiness. It wasn't even warm. And she goes, well, that's not working. And uh, we, we, we messed around with it. It just won't froth. Can't make a cappuccino without froth. So we decided, okay, next day, we're gonna, uh, Friday's my day off. We're going to go back to Bed Bath & Beyond, exchange it. Let's try another one. Obviously, that's a faulty one. You can't, they can't all be faulty. Let's get a new one, bring it home. So the next day, we said, okay, we're going to make our cappuccino. Went through the same process. Put the, put the, put the milk in the froth there. It, it goes for about three seconds. Exact same thing. Now I'm starting to think, you know... Maybe we're not doing something right. So I take out the little instruction book they give and look through. And uh, everybody knows how to make coffee. Come on. It's simple. So read through. And there's a little instruction that if you're making espresso, this is how you do it. If If you want to make cappuccino, go to the next page. And there it says, add another amount of water to the reservoir so it'll provide steam for the frother. So that's what we did, and we had a frothy cappuccino. And you know what? You know what's amazing is is how easy it is to miss instructions. How easy it is to say, "Well, this is oh, this is a piece of cake," and then it doesn't work. And I think that's our problem with marriage. We grew up watching marriages, I mean, in our own homes. We watch it with relatives. We see it on TV. Obviously, we know how to do marriage. I don't need a class on marriage. I don't need marriage counseling. I know how to do this thing. And so we get married, and it doesn't go well. And we end up in the counselor's office or the lawyer's office and wonder, where the heck did we go wrong with this thing? Why didn't it work? I must have got a faulty spouse. (laughs) And so here's what some of you do. You trade in that spouse, and you get another one. And that one doesn't work. So I got to take that one back because if you could just find a spouse, that works. But the problem is you're not following the instructions. That's more likely the problem, to be honest. And the instructions are in that passage in Scripture. So I want to go over them with you. I think there's four basic instructions to provide a safe environment in a marriage. Here's number one. Marriage must be placed primary. It says here, a man will leave his father and mother and be joined with his wife. When we enter this world, we come as little babies, and we are, we are devoted and dependent upon our parents. Our parents feed us, clothe us, change us, do everything for us. So we are this helpless little child that grows up. And then we, we, we learn to obey our parents, and we learn through Scripture that we are to honor our parents, and they're the number one relationship. But then we leave home. Maybe we we'll go off to college, or we go as young adults, we get our own place. And while we continue to honor our parents, When we marry, we establish a new primary relationship. And it requires us to leave our father and mother and cleave to our wife, to be faithful, to be bonded with our spouse. And you enter into marriage with what's called a marriage covenant. Now, a covenant is similar to a contract, but it's different. A a, a contract and covenant both are agreements that two parties enter into. If you work for an employer, it's very likely you sign Um, you signed a contract. And on that contract, it it laid out the expectations, requirements, the benefits, the the compensation, and you signed it. Maybe you negotiated some of the benefits, but more than likely, you didn't have much say in it other than just saying, I agree to that, I'm signing it. No, No employee fires their boss for failure to fulfill a contract. If you want to quit, you can quit. If you can't fire your boss, they can fire you. That's a contract. A covenant is different. A covenant is two equal parties coming together in a mutual agreement. Yesterday, I performed a wedding at Fountain Creek Regional Park, and a man and woman stood before each other, and they said the exact same vows to each other. Exact same vows. For better, for worse, for richer, for poor, in sickness and in health, to love and to cherish, till death separates us. When they put the rings on fingers, they said the exact same promises about those rings. I mean, it was two equal parties coming together in a covenant. You will not enter into a covenant with any other person on the face of the earth that says, I will be loyal to you till death do us part than your spouse. And therefore, that relationship has to be elevated to the primary place. And that's why we're told here a man and a woman needs to leave their parents and, and bond and unite with their spouse. But here's the problem in a lot of marriages. They never do that. And I often see this where, where, especially if the parents live in the same community, where this, this child continues to feel like a child, and the parents continue to provide for that child, even though that child's married now to somebody else. And whenever issues come up in that marriage, that child picks up the phone or goes over to mom and dad's house and tells them everything that's going on. Sometimes it really angers the other spouse. Because they recognize the fact that we have not set up our own family. You are still part of that family. Now, the Bible tells us to continue to honor our parents. But it also says you are starting your family now. Your primary loyalty is to your spouse. Not to your parents anymore. It's to your spouse. Sometimes, in a marriage situation, especially over the course of time, other people become primary. For example, this happens often where where a, a, a wife will say, My husband loves his job more than his family, and he loves working with his people. He loves the camaraderie there. He works long hours. When he comes home, he brings his work home with him, he works at home at night. He even brings his laptop to bed sometimes, and so the job becomes like the other woman because she feels violated. He loves his people there more than he loves his own family, or maybe it's the friend's. That the spouse continues to want to get away from the home to hang out with the friends, whether it's at the club or the bar or the gym, wherever it is. They love hanging out with the friends more than their own spouse and family. But I think that the biggest challenge in keeping the marriage primary, honestly, is children. Because here's what happens, especially with your very first child, you are so excited about the child, your whole world revolves around that child. I, I mean, you've got to feed them, care for them, Arrange their time. So your whole schedule now is revolving around, well, we can't do that because that's nap time for little Joey. And we got to leave early because he's gotta, little Joey's got to get to bed. And so your whole life is, is, is worked around this little adorable treasure that God has given you. Now, here's the problem. When those kids who've been the center of your world get a little older, they want to stay at the center of your world. And they want your world to continue to revolve around. them. So it's always mommy, mommy, daddy, daddy, and always coming in between you. When Julie and I were, were, were young and married, little Stephanie would come and want to get in between us and say that she's going to be the focus. And sometimes we had to actually pick her up and put her on another chair to say, no, Mommy and Daddy, you need to talk right now. You're not first right now. And, and often this happens with, the, with a stay-at-home mom who spends so much time with those kids. When Dad comes home, she is so tired. Kids are, kids are after of so much energy, there's nothing left to give to Dad. And, and sometimes I've watched families where I think mom intentionally keeps the kids to focus because she doesn't want to deal with dad. And so what happens sometimes is, is when those kids, uh, and it seems very, very reasonable. I mean, we've got to do this for the kids. They've got clubs. They've got sports. They've got clothes. They've got all kinds of things. Our whole life still revolves around the kids. They graduate from school, go off to college or, or register for the military. They leave home, and you're left with each other, and you feel like strangers because you don't know how to relate to each other because the kids have always been the focus of your energy. The greatest gift you can give your children is a healthy marriage. And there are times where you have to say, you know what, mommy and daddy need a break. And whether that be while the kids are home or a date night. I've known some people who have kids and said, we haven't had a date night for three years. Well, we'll take a date night. Do what it takes. Find a great sitter. Use a, a friend from the church. Make time for your marriage. It is the only relationship you've covenanted with. And one day those kids are going to grow up, they're going to go establish their own family and you'll be left with the spouse. Don't you want to know that person? Don't you want to be deeper in love with that person? And here's another, um, another party that intervenes in marriage oftentimes to keep two from really becoming one. And that is self. There, there are times, I've heard this occasionally today, where someone will say, do you know what, it's about time that my life is about me. I'm tired of the sacrifices and, and, and demands of my family. I'm going to do something to make me happy. And so they make themselves the focus. Often I hear this when people have spent a lot of time away from the church with people of different values. And you start looking at their lifestyle and say, you know, I wish I could do what they do. But, but I want to tell you this. If you don't like putting other people first in your life, you're not going to be a good spouse. You're not going to be a very good parent. You're probably not going to be a very good friend. And honestly, you can't be a Christian. Because we're told to love other people as much as we love ourselves. Not to love ourselves more than others. And so all these other people and influences could come into our lives and usurp that primary relationship that we should have with our spouse. Keep it at the top of your list. It must be primary. Secondly, marriage must be continually pursued. It says a man shall leave his father and mother and be united to his wife. The King James Version of the Bible uses the word to leave their parents and to cleave. Leave and cleave. They rhyme. And and you know what that word cleave means? It actually has a couple different meanings, which are opposite. When you use a cleaver, you know what you do? You separate things. So to cleave can mean to separate, but here it means actually to adhere, um, to bond together. It means to bring together in a bond. So in a marriage, we've got to continually pursue That relationship. Now, my wife and I had a privilege the last five months of being involved in a program called Reengage. And and Re-Engage, the whole purpose is to get couples together, to focus for um, a number of weeks, to talk about bringing God in a greater way into their marriage relationship. And we just had a great semester. This is the first semester we've actually done the full program. It was 18 weeks together. And I'm just going to ask, if you were involved in that as a couple, would you mind just standing right now? I'd like you to stand because I want the church to know that we've got couples here that, that invested five months of their life um, together in their marriage. And so I, I want us to give them a hand for completing the course. Thank you, guys. And I encourage you, if you want to talk to any of them about what ReEngage did for them, please do. Because at the beginning, we all rated our marriage on a scale of one to ten. And then at the end of it, we rated again. And almost every marriage marked their score two Sometimes the five and six notches higher. And you can actually see in the body language of couples, when it, when it got to, to the fourth and fifth month, walking in, hand in hand, arms around each other, sitting closer together, being more affectionate, um, because they were learning to make their marriage a priority and to pursue that relationship. One couple in our small group decided, when we did the lesson on emotional intimacy, they took it real seriously. They actually, they actually um, left their home, had arranged for their kids to be taken care of, went to a hotel for the weekend and talked about their relationship. Now, we didn't know this, but they said that when they started this class, they were on the verge of separating. But when they spent these two days together talking about their relationship, they began to rekindle the love that brought them together. And they left that weekend at the hotel and said, we are more in love with each other now than we've ever been in 15 years. And I think it was because they went back and made their marriage the focus. They pursued each other. In the book of Revelation, in the second chapter, an angel speaks to the church at Ephesus and, and rebukes the church and says this, you have forsaken your first love. Do the things you did at first. And I think that applies so much to marriage. When you have lost that love, oftentimes go back to the things you did at first. No, what things were those? When you dated, what did you do? You spent a lot of time together. You talk together, you asked a lot of questions, you pursued each other. It's kind of like you're, you're on a hunt, hunting for that guy, hunting for that girl. But here's the problem, when you get married, it's like, I just mounted that thing. I don't have to hunt anymore. Hey, it's right there. And, and sometimes your, fo- your spouse kind of feels like that. I mean, they, they don't have a whole lot of energy and a lot of joy. They're, 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 they become numb because we stop pursuing one another. And we have to continue to work at that. Uh, It doesn't happen automatically. It has to be a desire that you have in your life. One of the reasons that Julie and I intentionally get away for anniversaries, especially those milestone anniversaries, you know, 10, 20, 25, and we just went on a 30th year um, anniversary trip, is because we want to make sure that we grow old well together. We want to enjoy each other. And, And for us, just because of the nature of my work, I have to get out of town. I have to get away from the computer, uh, the, the cell phone, um, the normal demands, the responsibilities at the home, and get away. And when we're away, we can actually just focus on each other and enjoy time. And we were just talking this week. Uh, uh, what makes our, our, our trips so enjoyable isn't where we go. It's who we're with. That we could go anywhere and, and, and find it to be very enjoyable because we just enjoy being together. I want more than anything to grow old with the person I enjoy being with. And if you're married, isn't that your desire too? And it will be that way if you pursue each other. You can't coast toward intimacy. You have to work at it. And in a very similar way, um, this third principle is that marriage must be increasingly bonded. It must, it must be a relationship that's getting tighter and tighter. Not just pursuing it, but you're going to deeper and deeper levels. It says that the two will unite and that they will become one flesh. And obviously, this is a picture of physical intimacy. One of the reasons that we know that marriage is for a man and a woman is because of how they fit together. And Philip Yancey, uh, in one of his books, um, reminds us that of all the species on this planet, there is only one that mates face to face, and that is humans. You know, you can act like an animal when it comes to sexuality, but sexuality is much more than physical, it's two souls and bodies coming together. And that's why God has designed us to where there is eye contact. Because we're, 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 we're coming together as one. It's a, it's a physical kind of a bond. And a husband and a wife meet each other's physical needs. I mean, I'm tired of the culture having the dominant voice when it comes to sexuality. God invented it. God created that as part of uh, beautiful privilege and responsibility within marriage. And yet sometimes the church is very squeamish and, and quiet when it comes to sexuality. And yet we need to reclaim it. It has a rightful place in a, in a commitment of a covenanted marriage. And it's very beautiful there. So, so it, Paul writes in the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 7, the husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife. And he's speaking of the physical responsibility, and likewise the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but yields it to her husband. In the same way, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but yields it to his wife. And so there's a, there's a responsibility to meet each other's needs, so we don't look out elsewhere. We aren't tempted to go to another person or another realm to have those um, physical needs met. But, but it's more than just physical. There's an emotional bond that takes place In a marriage, it's two souls coming together in a very beautiful way. Um, When God took that rib from Adam, again, I don't know why God chose that. We don't know how he took a rib and then formed a body around it. It's just kind of a mystery. But it's been told to me that maybe God was trying to communicate this. He didn't take a bone from the scalp to say that that Eve was going to be over man. He didn't take a, a bone from the foot to say she was going to be under man. He took a rib to say that she would be beside man. And so she is called his helper. Now, before you get offended by, by that word, because some people feel like, I'm his helper? I'm here to help the men? What about me? L- know this. That is not a demeaning word. It's not a de- demeaning word at all. In fact, it's, a, it's an honorable word. Do you, know, do you know who Jesus calls the helper in the New Testament? The Holy Spirit. He says, I will send you a helper, the Holy Spirit, who will be with you. So much like the Holy Spirit comes along beside us, he's called the paraclete, one who walks beside us, so our spouses walk beside us to help complement us. And just like the Holy Spirit is part of the Trinity, kind of a big concept here, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, all, all God, all possessing God attributes but having different roles. God the Father created this world, oversees the world. God the Son came and died on a cross. The Holy Spirit lives inside of believers. I mean, they they serve in different roles, and yet they are all God. In a marriage, there's a merging of two becoming one. Equal in the sense they both are equal value. Both are equal in God's sight, but different roles function differently within the context of a marriage. There is an emotional bond, a woman and a man side by side, but it goes even further, especially for believers. There is a spiritual bond in a marriage. It's physical, emotional, and spiritual. When all three come together, it is powerful. And for believers, here's how it works. You may have seen this triangle where where a man is here and a woman is here, and then God is up here, and as a man and a woman each individually pursue God, guess what happens to their marriage? They get closer and closer together. And so you have to maintain your own relationship with the Lord. Keep pursuing Him. And and each spouse pursues God. And as you do that, you'll find yourself getting closer. You'll find your character becoming more conformed to the image of Christ. I believe virtually every marriage problem can can, can be traced back to this truth. Someone's not pursuing the Lord. Or someone has departed from God's design. We see that in the Garden of Eden. God told Adam and Eve not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And when they listened to the voice of the serpent and listened to each other and said, ah, we're not going to listen to God, we're going to do it our way. Then they, were, they fell into sin and they felt guilt and shame. And that's when they took those fig leaves and began to cover themselves. Because now they felt, they did, they did feel ashamed. Because that's what sin does. It fills you with guilt and shame. And the way to to keep sin out of your marriage relationship, keep God at the forefront. Keep him at the center of your relationship. That will give you an unbreakable bond. It's kind of like what what, um, the writer of Ecclesiastes says, a cord of three strands is not easily broken. And then finally, the marriage must be ruthlessly protected. Because they were naked and felt no shame. And that's a very vulnerable place to be. To be naked before another person. When I was in... Junior high. And all of the kids came together for middle school. We had gym classes. I know it's different today, but in my day, you had one shower room for the guys. And some of you remember that. All the little shower heads on the walls. And 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 you get undressed, you go in the shower room with 20, 30 other guys, and you're all showering up, and, and you learn just to get comfortable because that's the way it is. And, and my understanding is nowadays there's a lot of privacy, a lot of curtains and individual stalls for, for people to, to be able to shower in because we're very private people. And you can imagine then when a, when a man or a woman then enters into a relationship, and hopefully they waited till marriage, but many don't, but when you're finally physically exposed to your mate. In our culture that elevates tan-toned bodies and and rock-solid abs, Um, most of us are very self-conscious. We don't want to be in the light. We don't want to be seen because we're kind of ashamed how we look. And so can you imagine a young couple getting married and for the first time saying, "Um, I'm, I'm fully vulnerable to you. And how that spouse has the potential to say something that would crush them. Can you imagine a young couple on honeymoon night saying, you're fatter than I thought you'd be. Yeah, you're not, you're, not, you're, you're not getting any that night, okay? <laughs> not going to happen. It's not going to happen. you got to be very sensitive. But I love the beauty as we grow older and the bodies don't look like we hope they look. And wrinkles start to come in. I mean, there's a guy that has 30th anniversary um, po- picture posted just the other day. In fact, his son is one of our student interns. And, uh, and I told Steve, I said, hey, um... A lot of great people had their 30th anniversary this year, said, I look forward to to Facebooking with you 30 years from now when we're old people. And then his response back was, maybe we're old married people already. (laughs) Some of us feel that way. You look in the mirror and you go, man, I I don't look the way I want to look. But you know what's really beautiful? And I know some of you are probably a little uncomfortable, but it's okay, it's a safe place. For, For people who... May not look like models to say, "I'm safe with you, and I know I'm, I'm loved by you, and I know that you won't hurt me when I'm in a vulnerable position before you. That's a beautiful place to be. See, it says in Scripture that, that men in particular are supposed to be very careful how we treat our wives. And in First Peter chapter three, verse seven. Husbands, in the same way, be considerate with your wives as you live with your wives and treat them with respect as a weak, weaker partner and as heirs with you of the gracious gift of life so that nothing will hinder your prayers. Men and women uh, are, are equal in God's sight. And really, women are stronger than men in some areas. But I do know that when it comes to physical and sometimes even emotional areas, men have the, have the, uh, the ability to really hurt a woman. And that's why I, Peter says, be very considerate with your wives. Don't let that become a barrier in your relationship with God in your prayer life. But, but wives, I want to also encourage you of what the scripture reminds you to do. In the book of Ephesians, as it talks about marriage in the fifth chapter, Paul writes and says this. He says, or each of you, speaking to husbands, must also love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. Wives, sometimes... You can really hurt your husband through disrespect. Through the way you talk to him in front of the kids, to the way you talk about him with your friends. And there's probably nothing us men need more from our wives than to know you think we're good enough. You think we can handle it. You think we're capable. And to hear that from you means the world. And so we're vulnerable before you. You can crush us before your friends through your disrespect. And we have to protect, we have to ruthlessly protect this relationship in marriage. When we went to overseas um, a few weeks ago, there was another couple in our church also celebrating their 30th anniversary, and and they traveled ahead of us. We were actually going to meet them and share some time together, but we never got to do that like planned because of an accident. And his wife ended up breaking her arm and, and staying in the hospital for a week in a strange foreign hospital. And that hospital didn't provide care like we do in our hospitals here. It wasn't air conditioned. It wasn't comfortable. There was not a nurse giving attentive care. And so this man, this man be, had to take responsibility for his wife. And he, he said to me, he said, Darren, he says, you wouldn't believe that one of the most intimate things you could ever do with your spouse is to wash your hair. And he washed her hair. And he bathed her. And he clothed her. And he helped curl her hair. And you know what he said? I said, what was that like for you guys? He says, we never have loved each other more deeply than in those moments. When he was serving his wife, when he was treating her in her most vulnerable state, in her most humble state, he said, I'm not here to hurt you. I'm here to help you. I'm here to love you. How beautiful would that be if we treated one another like that?